In the opening weeks of 2017, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, beginning here in uh, chapter 3. You'll see chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, printed in your bulletin. You can turn there if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to look over the, in the month of January at Ephesians, beginning at this point and going on through chapter 4. Power and love, love and power, these are pretty common themes in the stories that we tell. If you looked at what's showing in the theater right now, or if you flipped through your Netflix queue, or if you went to the bestsellers aisle at Barnes & Noble, uh, how, many, how many books, TV shows, movies do you think would be about the pursuit of power or the pursuit of love? I remember one author saying, These two, power and love, are the themes that perhaps two-thirds of the novels, plays, and poems ever written. And I actually wonder if if it isn't higher than that, maybe more than two-thirds. It makes sense that we would be interested in watching and reading about power and love, because to a large degree, that's what we're about as human beings. All human history is a record of that. Go from the bookstore's bestseller aisle over to the history or biography section, And how many of those books are about the pursuit of power or of love? It's quite a lot. One author put it this way. The love of power has laid waste continents and empires. The power of love has driven weak people to do powerful things. And not infrequently, powerful people to do foolish things. These are the forces that shape our lives, our homes, our countries, our politics, and our world. So what does the gospel have to say about power and love. It says, this is what we're going to look at today from Ephesians chapter 3, but the gospel says that you should want those two things, power and love. You should pursue them, and you should ultimately have them. However, it probably doesn't look like what you expect. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses, uh, we'll start with verses 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Power and love are two of the major themes here in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. He begins by saying, for this reason. Well, what's the reason? That's the risk you run when you jump into the middle of something, is that you don't know what he just said. It's not printed in your bulletin. But if you had started reading Ephesians all the way back at the very beginning, you would see that the entire letter is arranged as a prayer beginning in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul praises God for everything that he's done for the church, and he prays that God will continue to build them up in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's an unusual prayer that he prays in this letter to the Ephesians. It's unusual because it's kind of a teaching prayer. Now, we usually try to avoid teaching other people things when we pray, And that's a good idea because when we pray, we need to pray to God and not to the person next to us. But in this letter to the Ephesians, the apostle manages to blend the two together in a unique and actually very beautiful way. As he's praising God for the power and glory and surprise of the gospel, he is 
at the same time teaching the Ephesian readers about their salvation. So chapters 1 and 2 are legendary for their beauty. Maybe that could be your homework assignment. Maybe make a note and go home and read chapters 1 and 2 uh, later today, and it'll bring you up to speed on Ephesians. We'll actually read almost the entirety of Ephesians 1 during the service today. <clears throat> but in these first two chapters, the Apostle Paul praises God for how he calls his people to himself, how he persistently draws them out of their rebellion. And he goes on to describe the stunning way in which Jesus expanded the glory of God's grace to include all nations, not just the Jewish people. He writes to the Ephesian church that his entire life was staked on the good news of salvation to all people everywhere, even as he was now being persecuted since he's writing this letter to them from prison. So when in verse 14 he writes, for this reason, the Apostle Paul is saying that this prayer in verses 14 through 19 arises out of everything he's written previously. The beautiful blend of prayer of praise to God and teaching the Ephesians about the beauty and the kindness of their gospel, the gospel of of Jesus Christ. So in this prayer, verses 14 to 19, what does the Apostle Paul pray for? What is this prayer adding to it? This prayer in verses 14 to 19 is a wonderful weaving together of ideas. We could spend a lot of time pulling apart each phrase and diving into each one. The famous British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached about a dozen sermons on consecutive Sunday mornings just from these six verses, from verse 14 to 19. And the the total length of those verses is about 200 typed pages. So you'll be glad to know that we won't be doing that today. Maybe he could pull that off, but I certainly can't. So instead of going into that level of detail, we're going to look at sort of two big things. The two big things are... How does the Apostle Paul pray for the Ephesian church? And what does he pray for? How he prays and what he prays. So, how he prays. First thing to notice about how he prays, how he prays for the church at Ephesus, is that he does so pleading on his knees. We're used to bowing our heads when we pray, but the phrase he actually uses there, look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, That he is bowing his knees. There's an urgency to this prayer. He's been praying throughout the whole letter. I mean, it's not as if he suddenly started praying. But now he gets down on his knees to pray. You get the feeling that now he's beginning to pray in earnest. Previous prayers praised God for the work that he had done. But now Paul begins to pray for something that has not yet happened something that is vitally important to the spiritual health of the church. So the first thing to notice about how he prays is that he's is an urgency to this. He's down on his knees, pleading with God, Lord, make it happen. Above all else, we need this. The second thing to notice is an unusual phrase in verse 15. Look at verse 15. The Apostle Paul says he's praying to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It seems a bit awkwardly thrown in there, almost like Paul is uh, almost like interrupting himself as he prays. What does that mean, anyway? Every family on earth is named after you. Well, I think this is actually kind of a joke. 
Like this is kind of meant to be, like, it's almost like a chuckle moment for the Apostle Paul. It doesn't come through in English very well, but in Greek, the Hebrew, the, sorry, the Greek word for father is pater. And the word for family is patria. So as Paul's riding along, minding his own business, suddenly a pun occurs to him. Potter, patria, it's a dad pun. Get it? The biblical writers often use puns. I mean, almost every biblical writer uses puns uh, throughout the, the entire Bible. One word in, in their, you know, their language, Hebrew, Greek, makes them think of another word that was similar in the language. Maybe, maybe it has the same root, uh, but there are two different meanings to it. Maybe it's a word that looks similar, but maybe there's only one letter difference between them. Two totally different ideas. Very often in the Bible, the writers will be writing along, and a little pun will occur to them, and it'll bounce them into a completely new topic. And that's sort of what happens here in this prayer. He's using a pun to tie two ideas together. In this one turn of phrase, which maybe sounds kind of awkward to our English ears, he's connecting the dots between the God who created everything, our Father who art in heaven, and our own sense of place and identity. Because in the ancient world, nothing, nothing, nothing mattered more than your patria, the family where you come from. That was the key to everything in your life. It, was the, it determined where you grew up, your education, who you married, what job you had, what were your prospects for your life. Your family identity defined you above everything else in the ancient world. And then, in one swift, awkward pun, the Apostle Paul comes and sweeps all of that away. He is telling the church, you are no longer defined by your former patria. You are now in the patria of the pater. That is, whatever used to define you, the good things, the bad, the things that you wish, you wish you could hide You wish you could make them go away. You know what? They don't count anymore. You are now in the family of the Father. Think of what that would have meant specifically to the people of Ephesus. Their conversion to Christianity made them outsiders in the culture that they grew up in. Ephesus was home to the famous, famous temple of Diana, one of the great pieces of architecture in the ancient world. People would have traveled for miles and miles to see it and pay homage to the goddess that it honored. Everyone and everything in the city would be connected to that in some way. Your reputation would be bound to it. If you traveled away from Ephesus, you'd bring that reputation with you. Ah, you're from Ephesus. That's Diana country. be the first thing everybody knew about you. But when the readers of this letter became Christians, they were renouncing that identity. How do you tell the people in your city, no, I don't worship the patron goddess Diana anymore. I worship some foreign guy that you've never heard of. How do you have that conversation? Some of you, I know, have had conversations like that. And you've had to go to mom and dad, had to go to your employer, had to go to your friends and say, no, I don't, I don't love that anymore. I love this now. But in a brief word play, in in, uh, verse 15, the apostle tells them, you are not outsiders and outcasts to anything. You are in the family of the living God. You now bear his name and reflect his nature. 
Because in the ancient world, a name, being named for the Father, being, a name isn't just a means of distinguishing one person from another. A name reveals something about you, your character, your personality, your identity, your true self is communicated in some sense through your name. When the Apostle Paul says, you are in the patria of the pater, the family of God, he's telling them, your character, your personality, your identity, your true self are all being remade even now after his image. That was true of the Ephesians, and it's true of you. If you are in Christ, then he has brought you into the family of the Father. And you have already begun to take on that image, his likeness, just what you were created to do. Thanks be to God for that. So that's how the Apostle Paul begins this prayer. With urgency on his knees, with a pun more beautiful and important than any pun you've ever heard before. That's how he begins. That's how the Apostle prays. Next we'll look at what he prays for. So what is the content of this prayer? What is he asking God to do? The apostle asks the father to give the church three main things. Power, knowledge, and love. We see in verses 16 to 19, look at just some of the phrases that are in there. May he grant that you be strengthened, that Christ may dwell in you, that you might be rooted and grounded in love, that you might have strength to know his love. Which in verse, notice in verse 19, look at verse 19. He says that the love of Christ is unknowable. What an idea that you would know the thing that surpasses knowing. That you would know the unknowable love of Christ. How is that even possible to know the unknowable thing? Well, that's exactly why he's praying. And that's exactly why he prays for these three things. First, power. That's why, that's why Paul's bringing this before the God of the universe. That's why he's praying about God's power specifically. Knowing the love of Jesus, Jesus Christ requires a supernatural act of God. If he does not reveal his love to you, then you will never know it. Yes, he shows a certain level of kindness to everyone. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He is the source of all life and all provision for everyone everywhere. All those things are true. But to really know, to really know the deep love of God is an unusual kind of thing. It goes far beyond his typical kindness and provision. God demonstrates his deep, deep love when he personally comes and intervenes for his people. You see that all throughout the, the whole Bible, throughout the entire Old Testament. From Adam and Eve in the garden to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David from Joseph to Ruth to Daniel to Mary, and even, we learn from the Apostle Paul himself, knows that the story of God's people, our story, is one of him personally, repeatedly intervening on our behalf. That's the story of God's people. And that's what Paul is praying for in the church, for the church here. He's praying that God would intervene and make the deep mystery of who Jesus is and what he's done known to a people who would never understand otherwise. 
That knowledge requires supernatural intervention. But the history of God's people demonstrates that supernatural intervention is exactly what God does. And what a thing to pray for someone. What would happen if we prayed like that more often? That God would come and reveal his power. That he would supernaturally intervene in the lives of his people. Building them up at moments that they feel like they're being torn down. What if we prayed that God would come in power into the lives of the people in our life? And the second thing. Apostle Paul prayed that God would would come in power. That he would show his people his, his supernatural power. He prayed for love. Is the second thing. This gracious intervening power of, is the very love of God that the Apostle Paul is asking for. In verse 17, look at verse 17. He asks that the people of God would be rooted and grounded in this intervening love. Every human being builds their life on some kind of love. Giving love, of course, but especially receiving love. We all want to be loved more than anything else. And even more than I think we probably realize, so many of the decisions we make, the priorities we have, the things that we do, are in pursuit of love. We look to other people for love. And the problem is that they need love too. And none of us is able to give more love than we need. So there's always a net deficit. So when one needy person builds their life on another, their life on the love of another needy person, neither one of them can be satisfied. Sometimes we look to things for love, to stuff or to places or to experiences. But ultimately these are even less satisfying because a thing on its own without someone else there is always impersonal. That doesn't work either. But what if there was a source of love that had a surplus? What if there was a source of love that didn't need more than it could give? That would solve a lot of problems for us. The Apostle Paul is pointing at it. He's saying there is a source of love like that. The love of God that Paul is praying about is like that. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. But he wants us. The Father is fully satisfied. With the love of the Son and the Spirit. The Son is fully satisfied in the love of the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is fully satisfied in the love of the Father and the Son. They don't need anything else. But they want to love you too. See, between them, in our triune God, there's not a a deficit of love. They create a surplus of love. They want to love you too. That's why it's so important that we be rooted and grounded as he puts it, in this love and not another one. What, are you, what love are you building on? What love is the foundation of your life? What's the one thing you know that you can always count on? If it's not this love, then it's not something you can always count on. And that's what drives the Apostle Paul to his knees in this moment, pleading with God, to pour out his intervening love upon us. Power, love, and knowledge. Those are the three things. Because here's knowledge. Here's a funny thing. If you are in Christ, even right now, you already have this love, the love of God, in all of its fullness. 
But here's the funny thing. It doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always feel like you have the fullness of God's love. Sometimes the love of God feels very small or maybe even missing. What do you do when you feel like God doesn't love you very much? Sure, maybe I can see a handful of his kindnesses in my life, but does he really love me? What do you do in that moment? Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul prays that we would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. Which which raises the question, what if the problem is not the smallness of God's love? What if the real problem is our comprehension of what size God's love is? What if the problem is not in the actual size? What if it's in our perception of it? Because down in the valley, perception and reality are sometimes two different things. Sometimes maybe it's harder to see the sun, but that doesn't mean the sun's not there. We We might be a lot closer to civilization than we know down in the valley. If only we could get up onto the top of the mountain and look down on the other side, we might see the city that we're trying to make it toward. Paul's prayer here is that God would lift us up out of the valley of our own perception and bring us to the mountaintop of his promises so that we could see things, his love. We could see his love as it truly is. The the length, the breadth, the height, the depth. In verse 19, he asks that we would truly know the love that surpasses knowledge. How can we know the unknowable love? Only by faith. God says to us, this is the breadth and length and height and depth of my love. And we respond by saying, you know, to be honest, your love doesn't look that big from where I'm sitting. And God replies to us, which will you believe, your eyes or my promises? Which one is more real? That's that's how the Apostle Paul prays, and that's what he prays for. He prays that we would know the power and the, the love given the fullness of the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what he is doing, what he's doing in our lives. The whole thing is by grace through faith, only from God so that no one can boast. What a thing to pray for someone. And Paul, the great apostle, prayed it for Ephesus and he prayed it for you. What would happen if we earnestly prayed this for each other? earnestly prayed before God, took these verses and read through them and said, Lord, pour out that love on his life. Pour out that, that knowledge on her life. Come in power and intervene on behalf of your people, we pray. What would, what would happen if we prayed like that in 2017? So that's how Paul prays and what he prayed for. There's just two more things that I want to, we can't get past this. We need to see in these verses. You need to see, the first one is that there's a subtle warning here. There's a subtle warning in this passage. Sometimes the the warning is this. Sometimes we don't think we need any of this. Sometimes we don't want God to answer Paul's prayer. We often overestimate our own power. We think, I can do this on my own. The Roman statesman and philosopher Seneca said said it this way. Unless he can build himself up, how weak a thing is man. Unless he can build himself up, how weak a thing is man. 
And the truth is, sometimes we think, and the way we think is a lot more like Seneca than it is like Jesus. We don't just overestimate our own power, we often overestimate our own knowledge. We think we understand the situation perfectly. We know exactly, I know exactly what God's doing in your life. If you'd only listen to me, right? Or we know exactly why he said this or why she did that. We know the best way forward. Listen, if you only just do this, it'll all come together. Trust me. Just trust me. Do what I, you know, because I know the situation. We really, we really tend to overestimate our own knowledge. Or sometimes we don't even want God's love. We don't even want it. We're just sure we want his favor. We want the blessings, but we don't really want his love. Timothy Keller said it well. If you say, I believe in God, I trusted in God, and he didn't come through, then you really only trusted God to meet your agenda. Sometimes we don't want God to love us. We just want him to do what we want. And there's so much working against us. The devil doesn't want us to know about God's power, knowledge, and love. The entire world seems like it's trying to, to hide them from us. And even our own hearts struggle to desire, to actually want these things. I read something this week that captures how close we are, how close we can be to God's power, love, and knowledge, and yet how far, we can, far away we can actually be. This was the quote. I think this is beautiful. The most beautiful object in the world might be in the house of a blind man. But he's not even aware of its presence. And he takes no delight in its beauty. That's how close you can be to the reality of God's power, knowledge, and love. So it is with us far too often. And that's exactly why the apostle is praying so passionately in this moment. That's why he gets down on his knees before the Father to plead with his people. May they know your power, knowledge, and love. May the church be filled with them as you yourself are. That's the subtle warning that's here in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. And the, the final thing, I've saved the last two verses for last. You know, the save the best for last. Verses 20 and 21, we see a glorious hope. Let's read verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. One author described these verses this way. Finding no ordinary terms of expression that suited his demands, the apostle heaped together terms of the largest import to vent thoughts and aspirations which he felt to be unutterable. To him who is able, he says. How often do you think about just those words? He is able. He's able. How often do we ponder God's ability? In 2017, think often about what God is capable of doing, about what he has promised, what he's committed himself to do, for you. Paul wrote this to be doubly repetitive. You could translate it that he is able that he is able to do vastly more than more. More than more. It's just like stacking it up on each other. It's abundant abundance. That's what God is capable of. Abundance stacked upon abundance. An abundant number of abundances. 
That's what God has promised to do. That's what he's committed to do for his people. Think for a minute of what God, could, what God might do in you and through you as an individual in the community of God's people. Now think about the fact that God is perfectly capable of doubling or tripling that, of going so far beyond it that you would look back and wonder how you could be so short-sighted and unimaginative. Now, it's not a magic trick. God's power is not ours to do what we want with it. But in verses 20 and 21, Paul is calling you to enlarge your vision and ask boldly for the power, the love, and the knowledge of Christ. Not for the things that you used to love and desire. Don't ask for those. Don't expect God to fit into your plans. Pray instead for the kingdom of God to be built in you and to be built through you for His purposes and for His glory. What would happen if we prayed as Paul did here? With this kind of earnestness for each other, for the kingdom, for power, for the love and knowledge of God to be poured out on His people. What would that be like? Let's see. Let's try it in 2017. May it be so with us. Amen.